Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining in on this virtual event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs that has five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit a course at much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Today's IWP event is the sixth annual student symposium. Students will be presenting research papers from their studies here at IWP. If you have any questions for the speakers, please feel free to comment your questions in the Zoom Q&A portal or on the Facebook live stream at any time during the course of this event. Uh, I am Nathan Bader. I am the Student Government Association President here at the Institute of World Politics. I'm a second year master's student focusing on national security and statecraft with emphases in uh, public diplomacy and uh, this continent of Africa. Our first speaker this evening for the Student Symposium is Mr. Jared K. Martin. He will be speaking on the implications of China's Belt and Road Initiative for U.S. national security. Jared is an IBP graduate with an MA in Statecraft and National Security Affairs with a research background on the impacts of China's rapidly expanding role in global affairs and U.S. national security priorities. Uh, Jared, the floor is yours. I look forward to your presentation. Thank you. Okay, my presentation is on China's Belt and Road Initiative. I'll try to speak quickly to uh, get as much of the information uh, through as possible and still leave time for questions at the end. Uh, China is swiftly becoming a geopolitical force that is simply too powerful to ignore. Given its immense population, its economic and strategic trajectory, combined with its rapidly advancing military capabilities, China's resurgence over the last decade alone has effectively placed the rest of the world on notice. It is ready to make a move towards global supremacy. In the words of one Chinese academic, West and East are switching their roles. China is awakened. Generally speaking, the Western world has collectively viewed China through its lens of ethnocentric bias. As a still developing nation with little significant involvement in world affairs prior to the turn of the century, and still largely dependent on international trade relations as well as a helping hand from Western powers to fully achieve developed nation status. Perhaps needless to say, China views the current global dynamic extraordinarily differently. Until the last few years, the Chinese empire was effectively at the center of a Sinocentric world at the heart of Asia, a place of preeminence to which China now appears ready to return. As a reflection of this ambition and mindful of the potential pitfalls besetting the path, China has begun to institute sweeping programs targeting the world beyond its borders, hoping to use them in an effort to catapult past its competition in pursuit of Beijing's ultimate goal, global hegemony. China is on a state-sponsored mission to gain an absolute advantage over the United States in economic power, workforce development, geopolitical influence, military might, social clout, and environmental stewardship, a process which has already begun. 
as expressed by China's Xi Jinping, Chinese President Xi Jinping, China's time is now. It has been more than 70 years since the Communist Revolution established the People's Republic of China. Needless to say, both the world at large and China's place in it have changed significantly during that time. In the minds of both its leadership and its people, China's rich and extensive cultural history has effectively reserved for it a place at the head of the world affairs. By way of industrialization, international trade, and the development of its socialist market economy, China has again ascended to a position of prominent global standing. While authoritarian controls and central planning serve the more traditional components of its communist ideology, in China they have managed to successfully incorporate specific elements of the free market within their economic structure, commonly referred to as socialism with Chinese characteristics. These free market elements have, in turn, helped create the necessary conditions of the kind of rapid growth and economic prosperity that typically only free trade and capitalist capital investment can provide, propelling China to its current position as the second largest economy in the world, trailing only the U.S., and potentially not for much longer. Now looking to make investments of its own in an effort to expand its influence well beyond its borders, China appears ready to pursue the means by which it may effectively restructure the global economic order and reestablish itself at the center of global affairs. The historical Silk Road was established during China's Han Dynasty, expanding westward and consisting of trade networks to the territories of Central Asia and Arabia, eventually extending more than 4,000 miles to faraway Europe. A core development of this historical trading route allowed for the exchange of goods across regions and continents. And the period of the original Silk Road effectively made Central Asia the axis of global trade and an epicenter of early globalization, connecting Eastern and Western markets, spurring immense wealth and intermixing cultural and religious traditions not to mention significant exchanges in scientific discoveries and technological advancements like paper and gunpowder. From its earliest days, China has effectively maintained a Sinocentric worldview, not just in regard to international trade, but essentially as its fundamental position in both global affairs and world history. The term Sinocentrism refers to the ideology that China is positioned as the rightful center of the world, culturally, economically, and politically. Chinese culture itself has over 4,000 years of continuous history, and today's China maintains that the Chinese empire was the world's greatest civilization. The very word translated China by the West literally means center under heaven, and its emperor was considered the only legitimate emperor on earth. From the inauguration of China's first emperor, circa 2300 BC, to the abdication of its dynastic rule in 1912, a period spanning 43 centuries, the Chinese empire was governed by a series of hereditary monarchies believed to possess the mandate of heaven. The original structure of the Chinese empire was itself a Sinocentric system whereby many of China's neighbors, including Japan, Korea, Vietnam, etc., were officially vassal states. Beyond the vassals were a ring of tributary states, while the areas beyond the tributary states were outside China's Sinocentric influence and thus referred to as lands outside of civilization. Another aspect of the Sinocentric system was the tribute to trade system whereby countries wishing to trade with China were required to pay tribute to the Chinese emperor, a model that did not face any substantial challenges until the 18th century amid growing presence of European merchants. When taking into account the full history of the Chinese people, the past few hundred years of modern Chinese history has been little more than a footnote amidst the totality of the nation's proud past. 
However, that footnote has been an historically damaging one, not only to the pride and national spirit of the Chinese people, but fundamentally to Chinese, China's relationship with imperialistic foreigners and particularly the West. Known in China as the center of humiliation, this, period, this was a period of intervention and subjugation of the Chinese Empire and the Republic of China by Russia, Japan, and European powers. During this time, there was a considerable extent of degradation imposed on the Chinese people, their history, and their national, national identity as heaven's chosen people. As such, the narrative of modern Chinese history has been shaped as the enfeebled great civilization victimized by 100 years of humiliation at the hands of industrialized and military powers. This reality is further compounded by the revisionist history of which communist regimes are infamous. To the West, China is still viewed by many in terms of its poverty as a developing nation of relatively relative inconsequence to a Western-centric world history and perceived more in terms of its current trade relations and recent geopolitical developments than as one of the world's great civilizations believing its rightful place is that of a global hegemon. While many of the great civilizations of history still hold beliefs of inherent greatness similar to those of China, Essentially, none have the same ability to pose such a credible threat to the current world order. As a result, the West has decidedly underestimated China's intentions and extended it a trade window through which it has been able to largely restore its global prominence in pursuit of its previously veiled purposes to overtake Western competitors, a, a goal which it has nearly achieved. China's meteoric rise over the past two decades was not only unprecedented, it was widely unforeseen and has left the West scrambling to organize an effective response. Despite the hopes and plans of Western democracies dating back to the opening of China in the 1970s, China's economic prosperity has not succeeded to bring about the successful liberalization of its communist government as widely anticipated. Rather, the Communist Party of China has taken the 24-character strategy of former leader Deng Xiaoping Observe calmly, secure our position, cope with affairs calmly, hide our capacities and bide our time. Be good at maintaining a low profile and never claim leadership. And they traded it for new leader Xi Jinping's more aggressive national strategy designed to overtake and surpass the U.S. as the top global superpower. As a result, the very Western leaders that believe free trade policies and international investment would produce a China ready to join the liberal world order now find themselves facing not the cuddly panda of a perpetually developing China, but rather a Chinese dragon maturing before its eyes in the form of an authoritarian police state of more than 1.4 billion people and a vision to reestablish a Sinocentric world order. Since taking power in 2012, Xi has demonstrated that China's, China's leadership are ready to show the world what it can do and that he fully intends to set the global pace. Since assuming his role, Xi has effectively consolidated power, becoming known as the chairman of everything. He is executing bold, unified plans with his hands-on approach designed to give China an incredible advantage over the West. According to one expert, under Xi, China now actively seeks to shape international norms and institutions while forcefully exerting its presence on the global stage. As such, the future envisioned by CPC leadership appears to be less about the worldwide spread of communism, as with Soviet Russia, than with and about reinstating China's four millennia history of Sinocentrism, this time on a truly global scale. The end game for the Communist Party of China is achieving what is referred to as the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, which includes the restoration of the wealth and power formerly enjoyed by China prior to its infamous century of humiliation. 
Among the goals of the Great Rejuvenation is a world with China at the top of every major industry and technology, with the majority of world continents and markets becoming interconnected, positioning China as the economic and strategic center of global affairs, including a military that is able to effectively secure China's overseas interests. If fully realized, the ultimate rise of China would likely bear a close resemblance to the British Empire than an economically weak Russia engaged in global ideological struggle with the U.S. For China, the goal is fundamentally straightforward. First, to economically surpass the U.S., then to focus on constructing long-term advantages designed to further its economic leverage over the international community. In 2013, new Chinese President Xi Jinping launched a global infrastructure project called the Belt and Road Initiative, an ambitious foreign policy effort designed to reshape the landscape of global investment and international trade while giving a 21st century upgrade to the historical Silk Road and Maritime Silk Road trading routes. The BRI is Xi's signature foreign policy project and part of the CPC's plan to help usher in the great rejuvenation through increased geopolitical influence and soft power while boosting GDP and reinforcing its status in the global economic community. The BRI is itself highly centralized, top-down project administered by CPC leadership involving a series of investments with the stated purpose of promoting new corridors of trade and connectivity between China and the world. Beijing intends to revive memories of the imperial tributary structure of the Chinese empire, endeavoring to build a vast system of transportation, energy, and telecommunications networks, with China as a centerpiece linking it to resources and markets across the globe. According to Xi, such a network would break the bottleneck in Asian connectivity, as well as dramatically expand the use of China's currency. While unsurprisingly, the initial response of the global community was simply to wait and see, China soon gained the attention of the international community with its initial wave of BRI investments, amounting to hundreds of billions of dollars. The BRI currently includes more than 125 signatory countries with the potential to impact approximately two-thirds of the global population and includes an annual cost projection in excess of $1 trillion. The belt portion refers to the development of infrastructure, trade, and investments to connect China to Central Asia and Europe, while the road portion targets coastal infrastructure and maritime connectivity, extending as far as the Mediterranean Sea. The buckle in the belt is a central passage extending from the far western edge of China and moving southeastern to Pakistan's port of city of Gwadar on the Arabian Sea. This buckle portion of the Silk Road is most vital section of the entire land-based portion of the BRI project, due primarily to its strategic proximity to both China and key energy suppliers in the Middle East and Africa. There are also more recent additions to the original BRI, including a digital Silk Road consisting of infrastructure investments for telecommunications and digital payment systems, as well as a polar Silk Road designed to develop energy and infrastructure in the Arctic. As of 2017, the BRI was comprised of six economic corridors, stretching from China to the Mediterranean and the South Pacific. The BRI includes a wide array of potential project types and consists of hard infrastructure projects, such as transportation, energy, IT, and communications, as well as soft infrastructure projects like the creation of special economic zones, the negotiation of free trade agreements, currency swap agreements, and jointly reduced tariffs. The Asian Development Bank has reported that the region is only spending roughly half of the amount required to effectively support its current growth, leaving an infrastructure gap in financing estimated between $800 billion to $1.7 trillion per year. 
the immense demand of infrastructure far exceeds what multilateral development banks, international investors, and governments can be expected to fulfill. This shortfall in available funding is the investment gap that China's BRI is attempting to exploit in an effort to secure as many of the available investment projects as possible, including the accompanying influence and long-term benefits. In addition to establishing an economic framework for its new Sinocentric world order, the BRI is designed to address many of Beijing's more practical issues. First and foremost, China's massive population combined with its efforts to achieve a standard of living comparable to that of the developed world has left it with a massive energy deficit. As a result, Beijing has turned the BRI project to secure sufficient resources for its rapidly expanding energy needs. China currently leads the world in importing a broad spectrum of natural resources, chief among them oil and natural gas. Additional liabilities being targeted by the BRI include the pressing need for China to offload what was initially a sizable surplus in steel and construction trade labor, along with the desire to bring further development to China's remote western provinces. There is also a pressing need for China to diversify its energy import routes to reduce a substantial dependence on oil shipments traversing the vulnerable Malacca Strait and to establish in inland trading routes that would be shielded from potential interference by the presence of a foreign military. Beijing is also highly cognizant of the need to avoid becoming ensnared by a serious threat, which all developing nations face, the middle income trap. Effectively, the middle income trap is the process by which wages, quality of life, improve in a developing nation in conjunction with a rise in low-skilled manufacturing to the point that the cost of production ceases to be cost-effective for international manufacturing, and existing operations relocate to less developed nations, able to produce at a lower price point. Once the market reaches this crossroads, the momentum of rising wages and quality of life stalls out, leaving the developed nation in developing nation in question, struggling to either complete a successful transition to the production of higher value goods and services that are requisite for a fully matured economy, or that nation remains effectively trapped in the middle income development stage without any real prospects of escaping. Since 1960, the scenario has plagued close to 90% of middle income countries and CPC leadership are very eager to ensure China does not become its next victim. As a result, in 2015, a complementary element to BRI and part of China's new Boulder statecraft, Beijing announced its Made in China 2025 initiative. China's strategic plan to upgrade its national infrastructure capabilities from labor intensive workshops into more of a technology intensive powerhouse. In addition, rather than simply working to expand its export markets, China plans to use the BRI to become a net importer with a prime focus on oil and other natural resources required to keep its sizable economy moving forward. As China continually looks to meet domestic consumption, it is utilizing the BRI to target developing nations for, uh, for infrastructure development projects required to make the harvesting and transporting of neighbor natural resources from its net uh, from its nations not only cost-effective, but available at a price which will undercut current international market. Despite its seemingly endless list of potential advantages, it is vital to note that BRI projects to date have developed a rather extensive list of shortcomings. These issues include controversial controversies related to financing and unsustainable debt, corruption, environmental damage, legal issues, and community opposition all of which has served to darken the initially bright aspirations of the BRI brand and subsequently spurring criticism of China's approach. There also exists legitimate concern that much of what BRI consists of, practically speaking, amounts to little more than debt trap diplomacy, with sizable loans being underwritten by China's state-owned banks at a risk 
to at-risk developing nations desperate for infrastructure investment, often at any price. These high-risk borrower nations end up placing their economies extraordinary risk of potential widespread default. The BRI have, has failed to live up to its billing by all accounts. Seven years into the project, the framework of the BRI remains remarkably vague, effectively devolving into a blanket term for all Chinese overseas economic, social, and political activities with an abundance of ambiguous language, undefined elements, and unanswered questions. As of yet, there's still no official budget figure attached to the BRI apart from the generalized high-level figures and without much of, by way of supportive evidence. There's also no official map to indicate the location and span of BRI projects to be undertaken, nor is there even a published list of official projects available for reference. Despite the release of some generalized data figures, it remains clear to outside observers that these numbers are still remarkably abstract and conceptual, failing to approach anything even remotely substantive. From a purely business perspective, the BRI remains a project for which there is no publicly stated KPI, no overarching institutionalization, no formal membership protocols, no founding charters, and a timeline for development that is not measured in mere years, but decades. While the grand vision of the BRI has certainly made headlines, upon taking a deeper dive, one is quick to discover oneself floating within the vacuum of Beijing speak where one either takes the illusions at face value or risks descending into an empirical black hole. Essentially, the BRI has been found to be fully culturally, politically, and economically amorphous, able to shapeshift to meet the individual needs of the borrower nation, allowing the BRI to track to rack up significant numbers in the early days of the project. If successful, the BRI stands capable of emerging as perhaps the most influential economic, international economic development project of the 21st century, on par with the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century and cult central banking of the 20th century. An effective rollout of the BRI would place China at the heart of the world's largest economic network, making it the de facto epicenter of the global economy and resulting in a massive shift in both power and influence from the US to China, echoing a similar power shift that occurred during the 20th century from Britain to the US. At present, the US China's struggle is primarily an economic one. It would seem that the U.S. political philosophy of engaging, engage but hedge regarding China had essentially eroded over time to point to a full engagement void of any meaningful hedging. Being steered by the misguided consensus that an enriched, developed China would become a liberalized China and vastly underestimating the resolve of the CPC in that process, Western leaders remained comparatively open to China's export and investments while Chinese China followed a broadly predatory approach to economic relations with the West, deploying subsidies, tariffs, and non-tariff barriers while restricting investment in strategic sectors of its economy. As a result, China has received a massive influx of global capital necessary to bring to uh, being pursuing the Sinocentric objectives, something the Soviets could only have dreamed about. The CPC has added as the added advantage of not only reaping the benefits of its booming economy, but of utilizing its system of state-owned companies and financial institutions to aid the execution of its grand strategy. As China is modernized, it has leveraged its abundance of low-cost, low-skilled labor with consolidated supply chain advantages to effectively become the world's workshop. Often the most difficult step for developing nations is the initial establishment of the basic infrastructure necessary to facilitate and accommodate the elements required for meaningful economic growth. China's BRI is a part is in part essentially designed 
capitalize on this gap in the West system, targeting poor developing nations sorely in need of economic development, which have, for one reason or another, been unable or unwilling to take the necessary steps to gain significant traction in acquiring assistance from the established economic system. The BRI creates a means of financing for developing nations and that otherwise would not have access given their subprime borrower status. Additionally, officials in developing nations point out that the BRI projects are proposed, financed, and built far more quickly with far fewer demands placed on host nations than those typically financed by international development banks or donor countries, also known to have rigorous standards and time-consuming requirements that can be prohibitive and develop to developing nations with limited resources. The catch is that the loan security provided by the host nation as collateral for this low-interest BRI infrastructure investment is typically either the infrastructure itself, access to the country's natural resources, or any number of conditions written into the contract by Beijing. If and when the host nation defaults on its BRI loan, the infrastructure project is then repossessed by China in accordance with the terms of its individual agreement, typically resulting in some variation of low, long-term, low-cost lease to China of the new, newly completed project, which may also extend to favorable terms uh, on accessing the nation's coveted natural resources. If, however, the host nation does not default, it stands to benefit from a potential jumpstart to its economic development while also being guaranteed China's long-standing patronage of the fruit of its new infrastructure development. While these advantages may provide a more appealing investment package over standard World Bank investments, which do not come with such guarantees, there remains concern that China will use its position to leverage its will upon the trade partnerships and foreign policies of BRI nations, much in the way the same, much in the same way China already uses similar methods to conduct its foreign policy around the world. For example, the One China policy, pursuing uh, punishment of foreign critics, etc. In terms of lending, the vast majority of capital is limited to China state-run institutions as well as its construction firms. This vertical integration of state-owned companies enables China to provide everything from project management, financing, construction, and post-completion services. Effectively, this vertical integration enables China to create a cycle of capital that remains largely self-contained, safely within the confines of China's borders, through limited, limiting participation by outside elements in an effort to maintain its economic surplus in BRI exchanges. One example of this would be the BRI requirement that China's construction firms be, have sole oversight of all infrastructure projects, allowing for China to address its labor needs while ensuring it maintains its mercantilist edge. From Beijing's perspective, the world is essentially divided into four rings of security. Ring one is the Chinese homeland. Ring two is the periphery nations. Ring three is Asia Pacific. Ring four is the remainder of the globe. Under Xi, Beijing appears ready to begin expanding the presence of its military in accordance with expansion of the BRI to ensure project security in the second and third rings. The United States shares the growing concern of many in the international community that the BRI could itself serve as a Trojan horse for China-led regional development and military expansion. In 2018, Vice President Mike Pence addressed the BRI at the Hudson Institute and began in summit meetings in Asia, encouraging regional countries to choose the better option of U.S. financing, saying we don't throw, drown our partners in a sea of debt, we don't coerce or compromise your independence, we do not offer a constricting belt or a one-way road. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo echoed this message of debt trap diplomacy, warning that China's BRI is an attempt to effectively buy an empire. The U.S. has been working to reinforce its strategic partnerships in the Indo-Pacific and Southeast Asian regions. It has also passed several measures through Congress 
one of its primary initiatives is known as the Blue Dot Network, an across-the-board certification process focused on the various elements of a given infrastructure project while centering on the needs of transparency and sustainability with a mandate to mobilize private finance for infrastructure investments in cooperation with regional partners. Officially, the BDN is a multi-stakeholder initiative designed to bring together governments, the private sector, and civil society in order to promote high-quality, trusted standards for global infrastructure development. The BDN also includes resources to provide legal and technical services help Indo-Pacific countries evaluate contracts and debt sustainability prior to nations signing up for the BRI. BDN has since been deployed to aid Maldives in a reassessment of its crushing debt with China and has also aided Myanmar in renegotiating terms of its deal with China for a deep water port, much to the irritation of Beijing. Today's emerging ec economic struggle will require the U.S. and our allies to both think and act on a global scale, abandoning the regionalism of past eras of global conflict to embrace an integrated approach that effectively spans the globe. Over the course of the past two decades, we have witnessed China successfully pursuing its goals under ideal conditions, essentially with international support. As such, it is important to recognize that failures to successfully oppose Beijing's efforts could, in a relatively brief time period, result in a largely unhindered ascension to global hegemony for China and its great rejuvenation. It is essential that U.S. strategy account for the profound effects of economic policy on security as power distribution will fundamentally be determined by Washington's ability to ensure a favorable balance of power in the economic domain, which will ultimately define the future of U.S. national security interests. If the U.S. is to successfully pursue an economic decoupling from China, it must do so by first building an effective coalition of allies and a move to unify the liberal world against Beijing. Such action will require proactive steps to strengthen trade and investment relationships, the taking of effective measures to diminish collective vulnerabilities, and the development of combined leverage, means of leverage as the basis for a sustained, formidable opposition to China, strategic pursuit of Sinocentric world order. The U.S. has successfully led international coalitions against global powers in the past. It certainly has the capability to do so again if it is willing to engage in the extensive diplomacy necessary to do so. One hope is that the U.S.-China, U.S.-India relationship rather, could develop into the same kind of special friendship in the Pacific that the U.S.-U.K. relationship has been in the Atlantic. India, like the U.S., does not enter into alliances lightly, as it enjoys a similar value for its freedom and autonomy. India has plenty of direct experience engaging with communist China and has adamantly resisted inclusion in the BRI. The U.S. should invest in the Mission 500 initiative, which seeks to reach the $500 billion trading mark between the U.S. and India, currently at roughly $125 billion. This may enable the U.S. to capitalize on the opportunity to form new economic ties with India as it seeks alternatives to its trade relations with China. When it comes to developing a strategic directive for opposing Beijing, a cursory overview for the Cold War reveals a promising U.S. approach to countering ambitious goals of China's communist regime. As Washington's USSR policy shifted gradually over the course of many decades from a strategy of general containment to one of detente, it effectively refrained from applying the necessary systemic pressure that finally proved successful in the rollback and eventual collapse of the Soviet Union. As a result, rather than providing Beijing with ample opportunity to navigate the global contest without a significant fear of its weaknesses being exploited by a united U.S.-led coalition, it seems apparent that the best way forward is not one of containment or detente, but rather a rollback, placing pressure on communist China in a collaborative, integrated effort to exploit its weaknesses and undermine its ability to sustain itself. Jump to the end here. As the BRI has officially 
been enshrined in CPC's constitution, basing it has made clear that China is now wedded to the initiative and will not abandon it despite setbacks, pushback, or reputational costs. It is essential for the West to understand the life cycle of such initiatives on the part of China that they often evolve over time from impressive sounding slogans to meticulously structured programs via an extended trial and error process. While the BRI may have encountered significant challenges from its onset, the scale and scope of the BRI is such that even modest improvements in its standards and procedures could provide significant benefits to the overall project. In short, the Chinese are going to see the BRI through, even if it takes Beijing a bit of time to get the formula right. As a result, these early stages will prove critical to the success of Western powers and their efforts to counter the BRI and its Sinocentric objectives. It remains imperative that the U.S. respond with decisive economic measures in a timely manner designed to proactively counter Beijing's ability to compete with the U.S. economically or further fund its own initiatives. If executed effectively, it is possible, like the USSR, China would eventually reach the point of economic and or political collapse. A sense of urgency remains key in seizing the initiative as the U.S. must avoid its habit of engaging with China from a defensive or reactive posture. To emerge victorious in this global economic struggle with China, the U.S. must stay ahead in the race for world dominance. Rather than the arms race of the Cold War, the U.S. now faces finds itself in a GDP race with China. The stakes, however, are no less high. The U.S. must make a crap must craft a unifying message rallying a coalition of strategic partners from across the international community to counter China's expansionist efforts. It must lead this coalition of allies to a sustained victory in the economic battle with China, and it must work to maintain effective military deterrence as well as technological advantage. Staying ahead of China in the GDP race will effectively allow the U.S. to maintain its advantage in the other key elements listed here. Successfully paving a strategic path to countering Beijing's pursuit a new Sinocentric order. Okay, thank you, Jared. Uh, that was wonderful. I have uh, just one question for you uh, that comes from Robert. Uh, and because we're just a few minutes over, if you could answer this in about a minute, uh, that would be perfect. Uh, I will also be paraphrasing Robert's question. So uh, would it help China to expand the use of its currency in foreign exchange markets in order to possibly seriously compete with the U.S. dollar? I'm sorry, could you, I, we're cutting out here. Could you repeat that? Of course. Uh, so I'll be paraphrasing Robert's question. He asks, would it help China to expand the use of its currency in the foreign exchange markets in order to compete with the U.S. dollar? Absolutely. What we're seeing is that as China continues to make these loans through the BRI initiative, it's, it's ratcheting up in, in terms of billions and trillions of dollars that are entering the market as, as uh, accumulated debt. And as such, uh, the uh, Chinese currency is actually reaching a point where it could rival the US dollar as a reserve currency. So there's a, a lot of potential uh, uh, gains to be made there by the Chinese, and they are certainly looking to take advantage of that. Great. Thank you, Jared. 